Well, this past week, my daughter Maggie celebrated her 20th birthday. I didn't tell her I was going to open this way. Yeah, she's smirking at me in the back. Uh, and I remember that, uh, that birthday, that first birthday, that birth, like it was yesterday. She was born on October 31st, which all good Christians know is not Halloween, but Reformation Day. And so uh, that was quite exciting for me as a church history buff. And so we named her after Martin Luther's daughter, his dear Magdalena, because that's what seminary students do. Right? They name their kids after the obscure offspring of reformers. But that nursing staff didn't apparently get the memo because when I went to her and saw her in that crib, she was not wrapped in the 95 Theses, but in some pumpkin pagan blanket. At any rate. I do remember, though, looking at her with the blanket nonetheless and staring at her and wondering, will she get Aaron's smile or will she get my frown? Will she sing beautifully like her mom or will she screech awkwardly like her dad? Will she swim like my side of the family or is she going to stay on land like Aaron's side of the family? Right, Because as parents, we recognize we pass a lot of our own characteristics on to our kids. And we like to think our kids will get the best of us. We pray our kids get the best of us. But friends, sometimes they get the worst of us. Anger and addiction, dishonesty and infidelity, egotism and greed... Sometimes the cycle of generational sins we pass down to our children much like we pass them the color of our own skin. You know, they say biology is destiny. Well, friend, what does that look like exactly? And can that cycle be broken? Well, that brings us back this morning to our study in 2 Samuel. I invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapters 13 and 14, which if you don't happen to have a Bible with you, you can find on those red uh, Bibles in the pew before you on page 264, page 264. And if you're just joining with us, we've been tracing the rise and then the subsequent fall of Israel's great king, David. For in chapter 11, the man who is after God's own heart well, what did we see? We saw him follow his own heart. He spies Bathsheba. He sends for her. He seduces her. He sleeps with her. And then he must kill her husband in order to cover his own tracks. And then in chapter 12, David is confronted by Nathan. And he comes under genuine conviction. There's confession. There's contrition. There's the, the mark and the start of a course correction. And yet all along the way, it seems, David's children have been quietly watching. It seems they've been taking notes. Which brings us to chapter 13 and chapter 14 this morning. Some of the most disturbing, distressing, and really devastating chapters in all the Bible. So just a word uh, now as a pastor to, to parents, especially with, with young children, there's some brutal stuff in these chapters, especially chapter 13. They unfold kind of like a film directed by Scorsese or Tarantino. 
And while I'm not going to sensationalize it, I do want to be honest about it as the Bible is honest about it. And so if at any point as a parent you feel like it would be best right, for young children just to take them out in the foyer or to hand them an iPad and give them a set of headphones, whatever it might be, feel free to do that. We all understand. So we're going to break down the two chapters simply like this. Chapter 13, like father, like son. And then chapter 14, don't mistake worldly grief for godly grief. So chapter 13, like father, like son. And chapter 14, don't mistake worldly grief for godly grief. So first, chapter 13, like father, like son. We pick up in verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him. But he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said, come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other, you, other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. And so his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. 
and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. And when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, for I have commanded you. Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. And then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. And while they were on the way, news came to David Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by him tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled, and the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, the king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Abnon since he was dead. You know, friends, there are some uh, stories that never seem to make it into our Sunday school curriculum, and it's a story, I think, just like this. It's the story of godless actors committing godless acts, which is fitting because God is never mentioned. And if this chapter feels familiar, it should, because it's really a repeat of chapter 11, only worse. Right, in chapter 11, David spies a beautiful woman and sends for her. In chapter 13, Amnon spies his half-sister and sends for her. In chapter 11, David seduces 
and sleeps with a married woman in the privacy of his chamber. And in chapter 13, Amnon seizes and rapes his virgin sister in the privacy of his own chamber. In chapter 11, David sends Bathsheba away, only later to marry her. In chapter 13, Amnon throws Tamar away, much like trash and cruelly spurns her. In chapter 11, David panics and has Uriah killed in order to cover up his tracks, cover up his deed. And in chapter 13, Absalom methodically plots, methodically so plotting and planning and killing in cold blood for Amnon's misdeed. In chapter 11, David will have an unnamed son die. In chapter 13, David's firstborn son and heir to the throne, Amnon, will die. In chapter 11, God isn't mentioned till the very last verse. In chapter 13, God isn't mentioned at all. And we can't help but think like father, like son. For notice in 13.1, the narrator is quick to highlight that Absalom and Amnon are David's sons. And that word son, yes, it denotes parentage. But, you know, in Hebrew, son also conveys characteristics. So when we read he was a son of wickedness, it means he was a wicked person. Amnon and Absalom are truly David's sons and in the worst of ways. Amnon sins sexually like David with Bathsheba, and Absalom commits murder like David against Uriah. David's sons had been watching, and they had learned their lessons tragically all too well. So I want us to first look at Amnon and then look at Absalom. So first Amnon, we're, we're told he was tormented over Tamar. He was obsessed to the point of becoming ill. Made all the worse, of course, because she is his sister. Over 12 times in chapter 13, brother and sister. That relationship keeps being laid for us to remind us of, of the incestuous nature of it all. Right? They're siblings, and, and the Old Testament forbid this. And we get the first hint that something is going to go tragically wrong. And we read at the end of verse 2, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. There's the chilling sound of a predator, right, sniffing the air. For notice the preposition, Amnon doesn't seek to do things with her. That's not what it says. Amnon sought to do to her. There's no mutuality in this relationship. It's simply about what Amnon gets to do with whom he wants. But he couldn't do anything, he says, because she's a virgin, verse 2. In other words, there would be unmistakable physical evidence. You know, David didn't confront the virginity issue with Bathsheba. She was already married. But with Tamar now, that's a different story. And it's in here that, what, a friend now steps into the picture. And how wonderful, right, faithful and powerful friends can be in such moments and circumstances. And, and we're introduced to Jonadab, only we learn, the first thing we learn about him, other than being really David's uh, brother there, is that he's very crafty. And that word crafty is not a mistake, right? That should be taking us right back to Genesis chapter 3. 
and to the serpent who was what more crafty than all the animals. And now we know all we need to know about Jonadab. The man is a snake. Will you not tell me, he says. And the hiss in his voice would have betrayed any care and concern on his face. Now, telling someone is the right thing. Unless, of course, you're telling the wrong person. And friends, talking with snakes is never wise, as Adam and Eve had to find out so tragically. And what makes Jonadab so dangerous is he has skill without scruple. He has insight without integrity. He is a meddler, but he has no moral compass. He's the guy who shows you how to seduce a scrumptious female on Saturday and then shows up on Sunday morning telling you how to raise funds for the new sanctuary. It's sickening, and it's supposed to be. And yet, before we pounce more on Amnon, how many of us have ever listened to the bad advice of a friend? How many of us have ever deliberately gone to a friend knowing that they would give us bad advice and we went because we wanted to hear and justify ourselves by that advice? So Amnon begs for his father to bring his sister's company. It's an, it's an odd request. Were there not alarm bells going off somewhere in David's head? But we don't gravitate toward the unthinkable. Not in our own children. And right here, everything could have ended so very differently. But that would have required David to do something more difficult than even confessing his sin to Nathan. That would have required David to come face to face with his own actions and admit how those actions had shaped his own children. And so we read of Tamar kneading the dough. She's making cakes, and don't miss verse 8, making cakes in his sight. Notice how Amnon is watching her, even feasting on her. It's his own kind of visual pornography. What possibly then he goes on and demands they be alone? And what possibly could he want to discuss alone unless he's not interested in talking but taking? So Amnon grabs her excitedly. In his his frenzy, he doesn't realize how, how his fingers have already begun to bruise her wrists. And he blurts out, come lie with me, my sister. Right, all pretext now is gone. It's clear he wants her and he is determined to have her my sister. Like, oh, we feel the weight of it again. And in verse 12, Tamar offers the wisest. She offers the most biblically faithful response in the entire two chapters. She is the tragic story of the hero, for she says, no, my brother. Right? Notice she's saying, no. She just says it, no. And she reminds him, hey, you are my brother. No. Do not violate me, she says, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Right? This is rape, she is saying, and God's people are never to be marked by such things. She calls it for what it is. It's an outrageous, as in a wicked thing. Right? She identifies it. And then she reasons some more, right? Where could I carry my shame? 
I would have nowhere to go, she says. If you loved me, you wouldn't do this to me. And you, she says, would be one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Everyone would, would sneer and hiss when they heard your name. And if it has to happen, Amnon, if you're going to force this to happen, at least talk to dad first, right? Don't do it like this. It's an astounding speech for a woman who's trapped, who is alone and staring straight into the face of a predator. But Amnon wouldn't listen to reason. For sin despises reason. Sin is only bent on destruction. And in his strength, he overpowered her, we read, and he violated her. An expression that violated used four times in chapter 13, what other translations refer to as rape, right? The Bible is hiding nothing of what Amnon has done. We are meant to see it for what it is. He wanted and he took because he could. Like father, like son. And notice what happened. Was it two minutes later? Was it ten minutes later? We're not told only that right after, verse 15, then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And we just got to ask, whoa, wait, time out. How did that happen? Why did that happen? Well, friends, because it was never about love. It was always about lust. And you know what? Lust masquerades as love, but lust is the furthest thing from love. And I think this is part of the cleverness of Scripture, as John Henderson and I were talking this week, because the narrator uses the word love in the way that the world often uses it, in the way Amnon uses it. All the while, the Bible is exposing this for what it is, because lust is not about love. It's about power. It's about conquest. It's about dominion. And in that sense, lust is the bedfellow of hatred, not love. For lust never has the best interest of its object in view. No, lust simply uses the object for personal gratification. And once used and the conquest is over, there is no use for her. Once the pleasure is grasped, the person is discarded. Like taking the final puff of a cigarette and then just tossing it to the street and then grinding it underfoot. Notice exactly how Amnon sends her out, verse 17. Put this woman out of my presence, bolt the door after her. Right? His hatred is so great, he can't even bring himself to call her by her name. This woman, we read, only women, a woman actually isn't in the Hebrew text. It's just the demonstrative pronoun, this. I think the CSB helpfully captures it. Get this away from me. Get this away from me. As if Tamar is now nothing but a piece of trash he can toss to the curb. She tears her robe, stumbling and weeping. And the last we read of her is that she is alone, a desolate Woman, verse 20. It's the language used of ruined and ransacked cities. Because her life has now been utterly ransacked and ruined. 
And it is a dark and it is a despicable and it is a dehumanizing story. Sadly, it's not a story though. And so to the men in the room this morning, and I want to speak particularly to the Christian men, we can't inspect Amnon from a safe distance. We must come face to face with the brutality and the inhumanity of sexual violence against women. Because rape doesn't just violate the body, it violates humanity. Rape is sexual humiliation. It is sexual dehumanization. It is hatred. And that's where all lust begins. It begins by viewing women not as image bearers, but viewing them as objects. And it encourages them to think of themselves and to dress and behave like objects. And it doesn't just mean rape, lust doesn't. No, every time you linger over that ad or every time you steal that second glance, every time you grab the remote and want to replay that scene in the quietness of your own apartment or maybe scroll down the screen, you're driven by lust, not love. You're driven by hatred, not affection. And you're walking in the shoes of Amnon. You know, as Christian men, we're called to protect, we're called to cherish, we're called to guard, we're called to treasure, we're called to serve, we're called to sacrifice. We're not called to use and abuse. We have the opportunity to paint such a different picture, such a beautiful picture. But think hard about your life and ask yourself, what picture are you painting? What are you drawing in the quiet recesses of your own mind? And be honest with yourself if it looks too much like Amnon. Now to those in the room who've suffered abuse, and I I know you're here, I know your stories, tragically statistics tell us there will be many in this room who have suffered under such abuse. Whether it's a woman at the hands of violent men or whether it's a boy or a girl, before abusive parents or relatives or neighbors. I just want to say to you, my heart grieves for you. How many times this week did I read this chapter? Every day I read it and I just put my head into my hands. I wished I was preaching a different chapter. But God has us here and he has us here for a reason. And... I want you to know that while I grieve for you, yeah, maybe that's helpful, but much more importantly, the Lord grieves with you. He grieves with you for what was done to you was wicked. It was vile. It was wrong. And about that, the Bible is unmistakably clear, as clear as it is here in chapter 13. And you must remember your worth is not tied up in what's been done to you against your will, but rather what has been done for you in the person of Christ. Right? Jesus Christ has come for you. Jesus Christ has bled for you. Jesus Christ has died for you. He will one day resurrect you and he will gather you to himself. In him you're not trash, you're treasured. In him you're not hated, you're beloved. Christ deals gently with you. Christ deals lovingly with you. You may feel tainted. You may feel stained. But you know, friends, he washes whiter than snow. 
like Tamar, the garments of your own life may have been ripped from you. Metaphorically, literally, I don't know. But Jesus clothes you with robes of righteousness. And one day, the wrath of his vengeance will erupt against all who have stolen from you and taken from you simply because they could. Those who have mocked his justice will one day find themselves under the fury of that very justice they mocked. And on that day, there will be no place to run and no place to hide. And that is what David was to exemplify. That's what David was to model as the king over Israel and the community. He was to ensure that justice was to be done. And the law provided rather plenty of options for David. Right, Leviticus 20.17, what do we read? The penalty for incest is death. Now, maybe David's thinking this is the half-sister. Maybe it's a little less clear. I don't know. He's not sure, perhaps. Well, then you could have gone to Deuteronomy 22, 28 and 29. At least that would be very clear in that text, that Amnon would have to pay a steep penalty for what he's done. And then he would be required to provide for Tamar like a husband for the rest of her life. And that was for her protection for her care, since given the customs of the day, that rape has now left her unmarriageable. David has options. And notice what he does, verse 21. He gets very angry. Very angry. And that's good. But that's all. And that's not good. He's furious. He can barely contain his rage, but unfortunately, that's exactly what he did. It seems David couldn't bring himself to punish his own son. And so a predator is still roaming about. A victim is discarded and desolate. And a brother has become a seething and scheming vigilante. David's a coward. He's being presented here as a a kind of second Eli. If you remember Eli all the way back in 1 Samuel 2, Eli with his worthless sons, he has become a permissive father who has turned a blind eye to his children's sins. Right, The man who would stand up to the mighty Goliath now sits down and does nothing to avenge his little girl. And so the scene ends in a terminus of ruins. Which brings us to Absalom. Because in many ways these chapters are really about him Notice Absalom is the one who gets the first introduction at the start of chapter 13. And he's the one who remains in the spotlight all the way to chapter 18. Right, the boy who grew up hearing countless stories of his father's heroism and courage is now come face to face with his cowardice, with his impotence. We read in verse 23 that two full years had passed. It seems the sordid affair is now behind them. There's business as usual in the royal court. Only Absalom hasn't forgotten. He knows revenge is a dish best served cold. And so he hatches his own plot. He cajoles David to let Amnon and his brothers join him for the sheep shearing festival about 15 or so miles north of Jerusalem. David relents. And we're seeing how he's become a man so easily swayed, so easily manipulated, 
Only once Amnon has his fill of happy hour, once he's on his third cocktail and his defenses are down and his spirits are up, Absalom says to his men, that's when you strike him and kill him. Which is exactly what they do. And the heir to the throne, the firstborn Amnon, is executed in cold blood. And notice what has just happened. The sword has now struck David's house, just as God said it would in 2 Samuel 12, 20. God's word is tragically coming to pass. And just notice how every actor acts autonomously, freely, without any manipulation, and yet all of them working to accomplish what the Lord intends to accomplish. We've got divine sovereignty and human responsibility hand in hand again, as it so often is in the Bible. Now, word then gets to the king that all of his sons are dead, and what does he do? It's now his turn, notice, to, to rend his own garments and to tear them and to toss himself to the ground. Only look who shows up again in verse 32. Jonadab. The snake is still loose in David's house. And somewhere... Jonadab, somehow he knows that all the king's sons aren't dead. In fact, in verse 32, he admits that he's actually known about this plan for two years. And he says nothing. Because that's what snakes do. They live on anarchy. They live and feast on destruction. They come to steal and kill and destroy. Was this his diabolical plot from the very beginning? Right? We can only surmise. We don't know. But now Absalom must flee. For as much as we might hope, this was actually never about justice. This was about revenge. This was murder. Absalom didn't do this for Tamar. Notice Absalom, well, he is satisfying his own lusts. For up in verse 22, notice how Absalom, we read, hated Amnon. The lust for vengeance was great in his own heart. And sadly, his actions of murdering Amnon now leave Tamar in an even worse position than she was before. For her only refuge in Absalom has now himself become a refugee and he is forced to flee. And so the scene ends. David and his sons weeping bitterly in verse 36. David mourning for his son Amnon, verse 37, day after day after day. Oh, friends, we may wish that our sins did not have ripple effects into the lives of other people. We may wish that there was no collateral damage to the decisions we make. We may wish in vain that our children would be spared. But chapter 13 reminds us they're not. Both sons, you could say, were just but a chip off the old block. It might seem that biology is destiny. Amnon sexually taking, even violently seizing that which wasn't his. Absalom killing like his father in order to get what he wants. Both doing it because they could. We still see it today, right? It's in the alcoholic who chooses liquor over his family. It's in the porn addict who chooses an online thrill over marital fidelity. Or maybe it's the, the permissive parent who never does the hard thing, never says the hard thing, and just sweeps matters under the rug and pretends. 
Maybe it's the mom who unleashes just unbridled anger against her children in the privacy and quiet of her own home. Or maybe it's the father who puts career and reputation first. Family, ah, they come further down the list. Friends, our children are watching. They're listening. They're learning. And they're taking notes. And to the fathers in the room, recognize the greatest temptation we often face. It's not often the path of outright wickedness like David passed and like he pursued that path in chapter 11 but so often our temptation is the equally destructive path of apathy inaction and that's what we see in chapter 13 you know how easy it is as fathers to be more acquainted with our fantasy football teams to know more about the ESPN scoreboard yesterday than we know what is happening in the lives of our own children it's worth asking if you treated your job with the same apathy that you may treat your family, would you even have a job? If you've been fired long ago, and I assure you that is a question I have thought much about myself even this week. Which brings us secondly to chapter 14. Don't mistake worldly grief for godly grief. Don't mistake worldly grief for godly grief. Please follow along. Chapter 14, verse 1. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. Then Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. And so Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? And she answered, Alas, I am a widow, and my husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan is risen against your servant. And they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of the brother whom he had killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. They would quench my coal that is left, referring to that only child left, and leave my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I'll give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, oh, On me and on me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on, on my father's house let the king and his throne be guiltless. And the king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. And then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son not be destroyed. And he said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, please, let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, speak. At this point, he's got to be becoming exasperated. The woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are all like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. 
Now I have come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king, and it may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord, the king, will set me at rest. For my lord, the king, is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord, your God, be with you. Then the king answered the woman, do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my lord, the king, speak. The king said, is the hand of Job with you in all this? The woman answered and said, well, as surely as you live, my lord, the king, one one cannot turn to the right or to the left from anything that my lord, the king, has said. It was your servant Job who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Job did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. And if only that were true. Then the king said to Joab, behold now, I grant this. Go and bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king. And that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. And she was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. And then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, see, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered, Joab, behold, Joab, I I sent word to you, come here that I may send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. And then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. And so he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Now, if this chapter sounds familiar, friends, it should. For in the same way, chapter 13 is really a repeat of chapter 11, chapter 14 is also a repeat of chapter 12. Only worse. So notice in chapter 11, God sends Nathan, uh, it's rather in chapter 12, God sent Nathan to David. And now in chapter 14, Joab sends a wise woman to David. In chapter 12, 
Nathan tells this tragic story in order to sidestep David's defenses and in order to move David to action. And notice in chapter 14, this woman does just the same thing. And in chapter 12, the story works. David is reconciled to God. And in chapter 14, the story seems to work. Right? Absalom, now at the end, is, it seems reconciled to David. Only as we look closer at the chapter, things are not, in fact, as they might seem. Because in chapter 12, we saw a great man humbled. He confesses. He shows genuine contrition and confession. And what do you have? You've got a course correction. He changes paths. It's a picture of repentance. And in chapter 12, God is everywhere. But here, chapter 14, God is largely absent from David and Absalom's lips. And while there's a kind of restoration, it's hardly what you would call repentance. For in chapter 12, the focus was all vertical, right? The focus was between David and the Lord. Here in chapter 14, the focus is all horizontal. It's between David and between Absalom. And I think what we have here, friends, is a picture of what Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 7.10 when he writes that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Chapter 12, all about godly grief, ending in repentance. Chapter 14, all about worldly grief, that as we'll see next week, will end in death. For it's now, notice, been three years since Absalom fled the palace at the start of chapter 14. It's been three years, and the chapter opens with, notice, Joab scheming to get Absalom home. Does he want him home? Does he want him to be extradited, so to speak, in order for Absalom to face justice? Is that what he wants? Well, no, it doesn't seem that at all. He simply wants a smooth succession, right? Amnon, the firstborn, is dead, Kiliab, who's the secondborn, we never, we never hear about him, so presumably he, he died when he was young. Which leaves Absalom, the third in line, next in line to the throne. And in order to avoid a bloody war where Absalom comes back and wages war, right, David restore him back to the royal court. And that's what the woman's parable is meant to do. So she, notice, tells the story of a son who's killed his brother in an argument, what we would call manslaughter. And her clan is now demanding vengeance, though she hints that the real reason behind the vengeance is because they want the inheritance, verse 7. And David's response at first is vague, kind of like, yeah, I'll look into it. Only she doesn't go. But just like Absalom back in chapter 13, she persists, she keeps pressing, and she cajoles him into giving her what she wants. David says in verse 11, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And you know what? For the reader who knows how Absalom is going to die, caught hanging by his hair in a tree, it's an ominous sign. Now the woman frames the story with obvious parallels to Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. Right, notice in both cases, they're two brothers, and they're quarreling in a field, and, and one kills the other. And it seemed that the goal of the story was to 
moved David to show mercy for a murderer in just the same way that God was merciful to Cain. It's why when David ends up giving her what she wants, notice she flips it on him. Verse 12, she asks for this point of personal privilege. She keeps going at the king, and she raises that accusing question, verse 13, and she basically says, hey, king, if this is the case, you're being hypocritical. This is where she flips it. For you've just decreed that a woman's banished son ought to be restored. And yet she says, you have not restored your own banished son. And right there, it seems, it's checkmate for David. But was it? I mean, we're, we're not in Genesis 4. We're on the other side of Mount Sinai. And the woman's story was one of manslaughter for which there was provision under the law. But Absalom was not guilty of manslaughter, but first-degree murder, for which there was justice under the law. You know, in the story, the woman had no other sons, and so the family inheritance is in jeopardy. But in reality, we know David has other sons, and one is called Solomon, or Jedidiah, as in beloved. We know who the heir is going to be. This wasn't checkmate. Right, here's a crucial difference between the stories. Nathan's parable was designed to rouse the king's conscience against his feelings, right? Rouse his conscience against his feelings, whereas the woman's story sought to rouse his feelings against his conscience because David knew what justice required. There's a reason Absalom is still up in Geshur and not at home. And so in Chapter 13, verse 39, when we read the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom, that could have meant the spirit of the king longed to go out to him in justice, but it could have meant he longed to go out to him in pity, right? It's hard to know. So much of David's heart is presented as, it's not ambivalent. It's just not entirely clear. We're left wondering. And when so we read in 14.1 that the king's heart went out to Absalom, that could mean the king's heart was upon Absalom in the sense that the king was thinking and, and hoping for him to come back. Or it could mean the king's heart was against Absalom, meaning David was still hostile to him. And I think there's a sense in which the latter may be true. Right? It's why Joab had to bring out the big guns with this woman in this story so that he could move David's heart against his own conscience. And I think that's why even when Absalom returns, he's still in a state of internal exile, right? David won't see him for two years, right? This is like the photographic negative of the prodigal son, if you know that parable, right? It, it, it's, it's the parable, but in opposite. David doesn't run out, throw his arms around him, kiss him, then throw a big party for him. No, he, he basically ignores him and puts him under kind of house arrest. And yet the story still works, Absalom is brought back. And why? Well, because it seems David was moved by her story. And in her story, he found a way to go with his heart over his head. There's a part of him that wanted his child back, even though he knows what justice requires. And Joab, with this woman, gives him the excuse. And so notice how David in chapter 14 is driven by sentiment, not love. For love never calls one to put aside the commands of God. Love never says, you know, oh, don't worry. 
I know that God's word says this, but you and I know God wants you to be happy. God will understand if you do this thing, right? Just once, he's okay. Friends, that's not biblical love, that's sentimental love. And for David, it's that love, that sentimental love that wins. And you know what, sadly, for many who call themselves Christians, it's the same kind of sentimental love that wins. So what about us, member of UBC? We have to ask ourselves, will we be moved by biblical love or by sentimental love? Will we hold fast to God's word, whether it's on the Bible's teaching about marriage or divorce or sexuality, or will we fall prey to misguided notions of piety? What about in our congregational life? You know, it is really easy to sit here and throw stones out there to judge the people outside these walls. But what about the people in here? What about those in our own congregation? Will we show biblical love or sentimental love? Because for one in serious and demonstrable and most important unrepentant sin, like Absalom, you know, Jesus is clear in Matthew 18, that one is to be disciplined. That one is to be removed from the church. That one is to be cut off from God's people. The very same thing Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 5. And that as an act of true love, of biblical love, in order that that person might be restored before it's too late. Member of UBC, will we together, will we show that kind of boldness with one another? Are we so committed to God's word that we would discipline those in love in here, even our own child? Pray that we would show that kind of biblical love, not the sentimental love of David. Because loving God and loving the sinner never means we have to disobey the Savior. Never means that. Sadly, David shows the sentimental love. And Absalom returns, kind of, sort of, right? So after two years in this internal exile, what does he do? He schemes again. He's forcing the issue. The man hasn't changed. Absalom knows now that when it comes to his children, David's heart will rule his head. And so he calls David's bluff, right? Restore me or execute me. And Absalom is restored, just as he knew he would be. And yet there's no hint of joy in the text. There's no cause for celebration, because it's not a prodigal son who's returned, it's a murderer who's returned. And sadly, like most dysfunctional families, these two never seem to address the five years of silence. They never seem to speak of the heinous acts that precipitated all of this. They gloss over the deeper issues, right? It's, it's water under the bridge, as we say. They pretend to just bury the hatchet as if that ever works. And that's the point of verses 25 to 27. You may have wondered, like, what was up with the narrator swooning over Absalom's striking looks and over his flowing locks? Like, why was that put in there? Well, friend, it's meant to remind us of someone. It's meant to remind us of the one who was, quote, more handsome than all the people of Israel, 1 Samuel 9-2. Do you remember who that was? That was King Saul. That was King Saul. The narrator saying, there's another King Saul on the loose. Equally ruthless and murderous. 
and this king is about to take the throne. And the care with which he weighed and admired his hair, right? That's not piety. That we see is vanity. And that, as we'll see, will be his undoing in 1 Samuel 18. Any grief that Absalom feels, any grief David feels, it's not godly grief that leads to repentance without regret. No, I imagine as David looked back on his life, he would deeply regret all he didn't do in chapter 13. And he would regret all that he did do in chapter 14 because he was ruled by sentimental notions of love, not biblical love. And that's worldly grief. The kind of grief that sweeps wrongs under the rug. The kind of grief that glosses over sin, that that never finally takes responsibility for sin. A grief that resents any form of discipline and yet resents even more the lack of such discipline and justice. A grief that ignores justice. A grief that finally leads to death, as we're going to see with Absalom next week. And so we finish chapter 14 and we're frustrated. We're unsettled. We're longing for justice. We're longing for things to be different. We want to see genuine restoration. We want to see redemption. And in these chapters, there's just none of it. Chapters 13 and 14 are crying out for a king who would execute justice upon the wicked, like Absalom and Amnon, and a king who would grant hope to the wounded, women like Tamar. And again, tragically, David offered none of that. But friends, Jesus Christ, the better David, he offers all of that. For Jesus doesn't offer just a love of mere sentiment. No, Jesus offers a love of sacrifice. He offers a love of commitment. In Jesus, justice is never compromised. He satisfied every claim of justice when he died on the cross for sinners. He endured the wrath that your sins and mine deserve. And don't miss that wrath. That was the wrath, notice, of a father against his son. The very thing David was unwilling to do, God was willing in Christ to do for us. And then Jesus rose from the grave. He conquered sin and death so that all who repent of their sin and turn to Jesus and trust in him, they can be truly forgiven. In Christ, the guilty can be declared not guilty. And the sinner, the wicked one, can be justified. And that's exhibited in a godly grief that leads to repentance without regret, not a worldly grief that simply leads to death. Is biology destiny? It can be, but it doesn't have to be. The cycle of generational sins can be broken, for in Christ we're offered biblical love, not sentimental love, and he welcomes and adopts all to be heirs of him. Made in his image, sons and daughters of him. The question, friend, is whose heir will you be? Will you be the heir of the serpent? Or will you be the heir of Jesus Christ? Let's pray.